Please be seated. We are in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you'd like to turn to chapter 1 with me, we're going to be studying the last two verses of chapter 1. We've also been applying it to a Christian worldview. I'll explain. Colossians chapter 1. Let me go back a few verses for context. As Paul, in this first chapter, holds forth in all of his majesty and beauty, the fullness, sufficiency, glory, and power of Jesus Christ. I'd like to uh, read from verse 15 for uh, context to give you the scope of it, but we're only going to be considering verses 28 and 29. But I want to set the larger matter before you. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which was given to me for you. Oh, sorry, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them. God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The part for today. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, once again, we come to you and pray that we would taste and see that you are good. We know that your word is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, and we pray that you would enable us to treasure it and to taste the sweetness of it as we long to have him preached to our very souls today for true life in his name. We ask it. Amen. 
One of the biggest changes and challenges in our modern American culture is what's often called these days extended adolescence. Extended adolescence. Have you heard that term? Uh, people are noticing that it's simply taking longer and longer these days for people to grow up, especially men. In the United States, um, people are taking longer, substantially longer than they were just a few years ago to reach the milestones of maturity, things like finishing school or starting a career or a business or getting married or having children and so forth. Um, on average, it takes men in particular into their 30s what used to be accomplished and what many women today still accomplish by their mid-20s. I say this to no one's shame. I'm only speaking about the massive shift of our society as a whole. Now, on the one hand, there are some economic reasons for these delays, such as, for example, the skyrocketing cost of tuition and loans and the declining number of manufacturing jobs in our country. Um, however, on the other hand, this is not just a matter of economics. There has been a profound change that's taken place in our culture's prevailing worldview. So to illustrate, a uh, former professor uh, at Yale, William Dershowitz, not a religious man, wrote a book called Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of America's Elite, based on his time teaching at Yale. He marshals a lot of research and quotes to come to this conclusion. Today's system manufactures students who are smart, talented, and driven, yes, but also anxious, timid, and lost, with little intellectual curiosity and a stunted sense of purpose. Trapped in a bubble of privilege, heading meekly in the same direction, great at what they're doing, but with no idea why they're doing it." End quote. People these days lack reason, a reason. They, they need a reason to live. Not having one paralyzes them. People need a foundation on which to build a life and to take on responsibilities for themselves and others at home and at work. And this is what the rising generations say more and more they lack. There's timidity, uncertainty, anxiety, lostness. They're doing something and maybe even doing it well, but why are they doing it? And the part that most people don't actually say out loud is, is this. Why should I grow up? Why should I grow up? Some uh, psychologists have lately been calling this pejoratively the Peter Pan syndrome. Um, never want to grow up. The 
the more liberal media outlets seem to be some of them anyway approving this change in society there was even an article in the in the Atlantic called the cognitive benefits of being a man child <laughs> can't make it up um, as one man said you're only young once but you could stay immature indefinitely well people may approve or or disapprove but the fact is life has changed and changed profoundly in America there there are, are conflicting messages from the media, from our institutions, our schools, our parents, our peers, and young people are just asking the question that the modern secular worldview cannot answer. Why again should I grow up? The Christian, however, is the disciple of one, namely Jesus of Nazareth. And to be clear, the Lord doesn't tell us that we need to hit certain maturity milestones at any particular age. That is not his point. He says, for instance, whether single or married, get after it. Some, he says, have even renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven, and he who can accept it should accept it. But there is a purpose for what you are doing. And the point is, he gives us a reason a reason to be engaged, and a reason, therefore, to be mature and to be fruitful, a purpose in whatever calling we have at the present. And so here in chapter 3, uh, excuse me, in, uh, in Colossians chapter 3, for instance, Paul addresses those who are in the ultimate dead-end job, who are serving as slaves, and he says to them, to work not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. My, my point is that in Christ we are given a reason that in whatever calling or stage of life we may find ourselves, in order that we might be faithful and responsible, and diligent and looking unto Jesus. Well, one more introductory remark. You know, when the world sneezes, the church catches the cold. There was a series of articles uh, in the evangelical magazine Christianity Today, uh, a series of articles devoted to the problem of the juvenile American church. Several authors from various traditions reflected from their different perspectives on the problem, but probably the most important takeaway of all, especially given that Christianity seems determined to have both sides of every question, is that nobody from any side thought this wasn't a profound problem. That is to say, no matter what tradition you are from, in, in worship, in worldview, in faith, and in life, the fact is that too many Christians and churches are trying to live in Neverland. You'll never grow up there. In worship, in worldview, in, in faith, and in life, we find this problem in the church. And once again, the, the bigger problem is that if people are becoming Christians, what they are trying to do, unknowingly often, is to add Christianity into their American worldview as it were, trying to put the new wine of Christ into the old wineskins of a juvenile, extended, adolescent Americana. 
And therefore today we must not only consider our calling to press on to maturity, we also have to consider the implication for a Christian worldview that we may not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're not trying to add Christ into a juvenile view of life. We're trying to renew our very understanding of our calling of life itself to live accordingly for him. So in the passage before us today, Paul says that he labors and strives with all the mighty power of God to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Let's consider what that means and how we get there and how we are therefore to live. Let's uh, consider first the goal. The goal, which is stated in verse 28, to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And already, if you have a different translation, you'll see that there is some disagreement on how this word is to be translated uh, perfect. As I have it, the New American Standard says to present every man complete in Christ, or the English Standard Version translates it mature in Christ. And, well, the word can, of course, mean all those things in different contexts. The Paul often uses this word to describe full-grown adults as opposed to children, those who are mature. But then there are several other contexts where this word refers to the genuine perfection that is in the law or that is to be ours when Christ returns. So in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Jesus says, therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Not something that we are to attain in this life. I mean, some people have thought so, of course, and there, there has been a perfectionist movement, especially among the Wesleyans in uh, Britain and America in former days especially. In fact, the, the story goes that someone recognized Charles Spurgeon at the train station and uh, knowing his theology came up to him and, and challenged him a little and uh, told him that perfection was possible in this life, and that he himself had obtained to it. Spurgeon said nothing, but stood on the man's toe until he let out a word that he immediately regretted. And Spurgeon said, I knew you weren't perfect. <laughs> so goes the story. We are not yet perfected in every way. The perfect righteousness of Christ is, of course, imputed to our account, as we read elsewhere, but now we are to grow in our practice of holiness. So it says elsewhere, by one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He has perfected us, our sins washed away, past, present, and future. But we are being sanctified, learning to follow the Lord in his holiness. So what does this mean? Is it perfect, mature, complete? Well, let me try to bring together the translations in, in this way. The goal of our Christian maturity is Christ-likeness. And that, of course, is perfection. We are not satisfied with less, and we recognize how far we fall short. Nevertheless, we press on knowing that we can and must mature. And so, as one scholar puts it, the translation perfect may be too strong, but mature is also too relative because we tend to think of mature as, well, at least we're doing better than other Christians. And so, as always, we 
need to remember that the goal is Christ-likeness, which truly is perfect, and therefore we must mature or grow to Him. Well, as always, also, we need to understand the context, and here it is, verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. We need to grow in, in faith and wisdom, and right afterward, 2-2, he prays that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, attaining to all riches of full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So in context, this is what he is after. A mature Christian faith and heart and life. And one that is therefore not easily shaken by some new false teaching. Chapter 2, verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. Rather, chapter 4, verse 2, he prays that you may stand perfect, same word, and complete in all the will of God. So this is the kind of maturity, completion, perfection that he is after. Christian maturity is overall a process by which people become like Jesus. It's enough for his disciple to become like his teacher, Jesus says. Or Paul writes to the Galatians, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again till Christ is formed in you. That's the goal. Paul wasn't content for us to make decisions for Christ and then live lukewarm spiritual lives for the next 30, 50 years. You see, immaturity is not just a modern problem. There were immature Christians in the first century. Paul's challenge to the Corinthian church fraught with immaturity is, I, brethren, couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And this is the problem, and this is why especially we need to grow in our faith as well as our heart and life. There are far too many Christians that are woefully anemic, malnourished, spiritually eating Gerber. Paul's not satisfied with a big church full of people who remain ignorant of the Scriptures, remain spiritually weak, uncommitted, shallow, worldly, inept, content in immaturity, easily tossed to and fro by any wind of doctrine. No, no, no. The great passion of his life was to see mature, complete disciples becoming like their master. So are you growing in your faith, heart, and life right now? Are you becoming more like the master? Because that's what your elders want for you. And we are not satisfied with your current level of understanding, neither should you be. We want you plunging in to the depths of the riches of the mystery of God in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and not to be easily moved by some tradition of men. By God's grace, we have a great struggle on your behalf until you attain the wealth of the riches in Christ, and that is the goal, point one. Nothing less than to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we do that? 
Number two, the means. The means. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Well, if our goal is to present every man complete, mature, perfect in Christ, then we must proclaim him that everyone might see his glory, his greatness, his self-sufficiency, because we become like what we behold. As Paul writes elsewhere, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The heart and the soul of all that takes place here and among us must be we proclaim him. We become what we behold and what we desire. And when we proclaim Christ to the world and to one another, then we'll be built up and brought to maturity. Then we'll be transformed into the same image. So practically speaking, that means verse 28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. And you say, well, that sounds like preacher work. Of course, in part. Although Paul uses those same words about you in chapter 3, verse 16, as he applies this then to the church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, same word, teaching, same word, and admonishing, same word, one another. Here is your part in the process. Admonishing has the nuance of correcting someone uh, or warning someone who's in error. Paul writes elsewhere, we exhort you, brethren, admonish those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Some are faint-hearted, some are weak, but some need admonishing. And the work of every member is to admonish in love. Teaching is the positive side of this imparting truth, carefully thinking is a distinctive mark of Christianity, so we must be good students of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and be able to teach others. We must learn Christ and delight in the truth of Christ, and if our own hearts are dull or backward, so that our affections maybe haven't caught up with your knowledge, well, we need to tune our hearts to sing His grace. The truth of Christ can't merely be analyzed and assessed. It must be admired and adored. We must be more than students, we must be worshipers, and then we'll be able to teach others as we ought. So the point is, when we read Him we preach, warning and teaching every man, we can't just say, well, that's only for preachers or Sunday school teachers or really committed Christians, you know, the spiritual ones, I'm just an ordinary guy. Nothing can be further from the truth, for when we come to the second half of the letter, we realize this is why we all need maturity. We need all to be able to teach every man, to warn every man, to present every man completing Christ. And that's why all occurs actually four times in that one verse. Every man, every man, every man. That's the stress so that everyone's presented complete. Now, one of the things that characterize the so-called mystery religions of uh, Phrygia, where Colossae was, and the later Gnostic Christianity that was to come, what characterized those things is that only special people gained the spiritual wisdom or the secret knowledge that was only revealed to a few. You might have heard of those Gnostic writings, the 
Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, and so forth. They had a great deal of those. They claimed an oral tradition that had been handed down to them by the apostles. They had what no one else had. They knew what no one else knew. They alone had the fullness of the apostolic tradition, the true elite, the enlightened ones. And here is Paul's true apostolic emphasis. Every man, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. It's for all of you, every last one. And therefore, discipleship requires not only maturity, but work. Laboring, he says, according to the striving that works in me mightily. This triple emphasis, his power that works in him mightily. Go back to that in a second. But here's the great project of discipleship. The means whereby each individual is not only to be growing, but then using those gifts that God has given him in the service of others as to Christ, to grow up together. Are you investing in the body of Christ? Do you have the maturity yourself to teach and admonish others in all wisdom? The task of helping others move from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood, it requires that commitment, maturity, and effort, which can sometimes be as agonizing as raising a natural child to become a level-headed adult. That is the means that he's given, and that's why we need, third and finally today, the power, the power. To this end I labor, verse 29, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. You need power, the power to change, the power to change others. And this power for our discipleship is God's mighty power. As we read back in verse 11 of chapter 1, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. God's great power is at work in our minds and in our lives so that it not only would be in us, but through us. Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He writes to the Corinthians, I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I mean, I labored, but ultimately it was not me. It was the grace of God in me. Or Peter writes, whoever serves, let him serve with the strength God supplies so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. We serve, we toil, we teach, we admonish in all wisdom. We labor, we strain by the strength which God supplies so that we might bear real fruit forever unto everlasting life. This is the power for, for growth. Now, frankly, some Christians are stuck in the nursery, right? Imagine walking into the church's nursery and there's full-grown, able-bodied, mentally sound adults wearing diapers, sucking on pacifiers. A disturbing thought, but a scenario that, that plays out in large swaths of juvenile American Christianity. 
where people are complacent in their immaturity, and the church is complacent as long as the nursery is really big. This stirs us to action by the power of God, to teach and admonish one another unto Christ's likeness according to His striving. Him we preach, and we need to then commit to live life alongside one another. We need to observe faithfulness in the lives of saints more mature than us. We need to model that faithfulness to others. We need to be taught and admonished ourselves by others, and then we'll know how to do the same. And so you see all these words that uh, a juvenile culture is against. Commitment. Um, admonishing to grow. Um, faithfulness, responsibility. This is what is required in order that we might grow in Christ's likeness to live as disciples. We, we need to become disciple-making disciples and be satisfied with nothing less because that's what it means to be a mature follower of Christ. That we also proclaim Him, admonishing one another, knowing the truth, loving the truth, walking in the truth, but teaching others the same. Not just some, but every Christian is yours and you are his or hers, laboring and agonizing, giving yourself to one another, absorbing ourselves in these things, knowing that the sovereign power of God himself is mightily at work within you. That's the power, and that's how this passage is to be applied. Now, let's conclude by thinking a little about what this means for our Christian worldview. Now, as I said at the beginning, the, the, the situation that we have is uh, an acceptance of extended adolescence. And I'm thankful for what Jordan Peterson and others who have kind of made a living being able to tell, you know, young men especially, Look, you can do it, grow up. And uh, I appreciate some of his good advice, don't get me wrong. But he doesn't have the reason and the motivation that we're talking about today. And so I'm not going to be satisfied with some surface level changes to, in, in people's lives. Paul says, I labor until Christ be formed in you. And once you have that as your goal, that drives forward maturity in every area, responsibility in every area, right? Because when you learn to be responsible, it's not just responsible about this and responsible about that. You learn responsibility. When you learn commitment, it's not just commitment to the church or commitment to a brother or sister or commitment to discipleship. You learn about commitment. When you learn about agonizing and striving and working hard, it's not just about this. It's in every area. And so there is this connection, I'd like to point out to you, this connection between what changes Christ makes in a life, in a heart, in a soul, and the rest of those areas of life where we desperately need to grow up. You see... Now, in First Things First, Stephen Covey makes a provocative statement. He writes, the problems in life come when we are sowing one thing and expecting to reap something entirely different. The problems in life come when we are sowing one thing and expecting to reap something entirely different. We're coming to a new year. 
it's a good time to ask yourself, what am I sowing? And what do I need to sow? Another year is upon us. You're growing older. Are you growing up in Christ? Are you progressing in years, but still years behind in maturity? That's the real question. Paul famously put it this way, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. All of God's children, every last one, must desire and therefore pursue Christian maturity unto Christ's likeness. And we find that if this is our commitment, then the whole of our life moves forward and is raised up. This one answer is the answer to the worldview question that has stumped the world. But the world asks, why should I grow up? I mean, with all the advantages of living like I am right now, I'm happy. Um, there's video games, there's uh, things to stream, there's friends to hang out with, there's plenty of girls to date. Why, why, why should I grow up? And then we come to a passage where we realize that it's not just grow up, it's grow up into Christ. And that this is essential, this growing up is essential to your new and everlasting life in Him. Something that will glorify God, be good for other Christians, guard us against error, be rewarded at the end, and much, much, much more. And you see how the spiritual maturity relates to the maturity in other areas, right? Or I'll, let me uh, give you a concrete illustration. I mentioned to you some weeks ago that man from Dallas who grew up in the slums of uh, Dallas. He, he, on the video, he walked by the apartments where he grew up and was raised, now condemned and empty, but then full of crime and, and drugs and prostitution. And he pointed to all the buildings and he said, in all of these apartments, I didn't know of one single marriage. And that's where that man also lived. He lived his life for himself for years until something happened to him. That through a friend, he came to know the Lord. And it was a revolution for him and not just for him. No, nobody said a word to this man. He read the Bible, and he realized, he decided all on his own, that I need, to I need to marry that woman that I'm living with, with whom I've had these children. And he needed to start caring for them and not drinking all of his money away. And not only did he join the church, he started a ministry to people like him later, who grew up in pain and brokenness and immorality and total irresponsibility, because why? He had, a, he had a purpose for living. He had a reason to go on. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about maturity. 
And it's true that the larger part of its instruction is in the context of what we might call spiritual maturity, but there's a very close correlation between maturity of faith and maturity of life. And the young man who lives a childish life is very unlikely to possess spiritual maturity or to display mature character. And this is ultimately where people need to begin. This is where you need to begin, not just to hit those milestones in life, young men. Make your bed. You can do it, says Jordan Peterson. Fine. That's good advice. But I'm telling you that you need to mature in every way. And at the root of that stands one mighty power that is in Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One aspect of the maturity cannot be isolated from the other aspects of maturity. You cannot expect to grow in your faith or character while you are immature in other things, like even in your time and activities. It goes both ways. You give all your time, your attention to various other activities, light and transitory things, you're not going to grow spiritually as well as in other areas. So consider what you're passionate about, whether you're allowing lesser things to have undue prominence and realize that in everything he is to be preeminent, Christ is to be preeminent. But I need to stop putting undue time and attention and money into lesser, worthless pursuits. I mean, the, not to pick on college students, but the average college student devotes now, according to the latest study I saw in 2019 anyway, 10.5 hours per day to looking at a screen. It's astonishing. Now, I mean, probably includes schoolwork, right? But 10.5 hours to looking at a screen, 90% of college students feel overwhelmed with all they have to accomplish. And you see the problem. The, the problem is that if you're going to grow, you're, you're going to have to put your mind to it. And not just to hit certain milestones, but to have a reason to live. One that gives you purposes and priorities so that you must constantly be pursuing and achieving greater measures of maturity in all of life, not just one or two. You need to make a commitment to grow up into Christ, and then you will find everything as it ought to be. So in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he exhorts him this way, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The old mentor then writing to his young protege to encourage him to display maturity beyond his years. That'll make him take notice. While church and even society may have low expectations of young men, Paul's are very high. And while immaturity might offer the illusion of ease and comfort, I tell you, it overpromises and underdelivers. It keeps you from living, certainly from living as Christ redeemed you to live. And that is why... In conclusion, I want every one of you, especially in the coming year, to double down on the effort toward growth to maturity. Not, not just the young, certainly not just the young men, all of you. Commitment to lifelong growth, to the measure of the stature of the fullness 
of Christ. That's where we're headed. A runner cannot stop competing until he's crossed the finish line, and a Christian can't stop maturing until he at last beholds his Savior's face in glory. And then, perfect in Christ Jesus forever, we will have arrived. Not until then. Say with the Apostle Paul, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that your word is indeed uh, at times not just uh, teaching to us, but admonishing or warning to our souls. We pray that therefore each one, as each one being addressed here, every man, that every man may be presented complete in Christ, mature, to the measure of the stature of his perfection. To this end, we labor and strive. And so it is, Father, we pray that you would bless this word to our hearts and to our lives. We confess that it is too easy for us all, me very much included, to give no attention to the things which need the most attention and to be distracted by lesser things. Oh, Father, I pray that you would forgive me, that you would forgive us, that you would devote again our effort, our, our desire uh, to him who is above. And it's in Christ Jesus that we pray.